Well, hello, this is Ron Cohen with our Tax Update Podcast. Today is Tuesday, March 9th. And again, we have to say that because things are moving quick. We thought, uh, as a little preview, what we'll talk about today is, well, I thought it was over. I thought the final April 15th due date was going to be April 15th, but something happened last night in the House Ways and Means Committee, so we'll talk about that. It hasn't changed yet, but uh, it seems like um, the, the the enthusiasm within the government is is mounting, so uh, don't, don't take it from me that April 15th is not the date yet. Uh, We're going to talk about the $1.9 trillion COVID relief package passed by the Senate and some of the more interesting provisions in there. Uh, Always know that uh, we have put the links and uh, some discussion in the show notes. So if you want to dig further into anything I say, um, go ahead and look at that. And um, that's going to take a good bit of time. Um, So let's get going. First, a few caveats quickly. Uh, take no reliance on what you hear in this podcast. We kind of take this as some intellectual entertainment. But in order to use any things you hear on this podcast, or for me, you have to be an engaged client of the firm. You have to provide us with all your information, with the facts. We do the research. We come back with a formal opinion, and then you can rely on it. We're just we're just spitballing here on this podcast, too. Plagiarism is okay. We're not writing any novels. Uh, the, the quest is to endlessly find the lowest tax. All the information I talk about here is, uh, other than my personal opinions, are things I've found on the internet by people who put them on the internet to be repeated. Uh, so we plagiarize all the time. Try to avoid politics, although tax laws are the result of political confrontations sometimes. So I will, especially when new legislation is being discussed, talk about the uh, political battles that led to the result. We do oh, about 1,300 or so returns in this ret- uh, firm. Uh, we do tax planning and um, feel free to call us anytime. I am no cheerleader for the tax law. I think it's intrusive. It evades your privacy. It connects you and the, the government has way too much information on you uh, through the tax system and then combining it with the uh, other parts of the government that are watching everything you do on the Internet. And uh, um, I'm against all of that. But it's the system we have. I respect it. And you always have to try to get an A on a tax return, not an A minus, not a B, not a C. You have to try to get an A and respect the system we have. So I am Ron Cohen. I'm a partner at the firm of Greenstein, Rogoff, Olson & Company here in beautiful downtown Fremont, California, about 15 miles north of San Jose. Our uh, phone number is 510-797-8661. My extension is 237. And our website is www.groco.com. All right, so you have all that. So I thought it was over. And uh, I wish they would make a decision already. I thought that April 15th was in stone, not going to change. The, uh, uh, the members of uh, the IRS, the commissioner, uh, the secretary of the Treasury under, uh, under President Trump uh, had said that we're not changing it. Okay, we, you know, COVID, we're, we're used to it. 
to an extent. Uh, it, it causes great disruption. It slows down the funds flowing to the government when you defer a due date. Um, so I thought we were done. It's April 15th. But last night, uh, the House Ways and Means Committee, the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee. Now, a uh, quick review. In the uh, federal system we have, in Congress, all tax bills, all tax bills have to start and be approved by the House of Representatives. And the House of Representatives has that processed by the House Ways and Means Committee. So the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, uh, Chairman Richard E. Neal, Democrat from the state of Maine, he is literally, uh, and uh, with no exaggeration, the top tax dude in the federal government. He's, uh, he, uh, he decides what bills make it to the floor of the House for passage or even consideration. And if he doesn't like one, he can kill it immediately. And they're always coordinating with the IRS, trying to help them out, make sure things are being done well. So uh, uh, mid-February, a subcommittee of the House Ways and Means Committee said we really need to extend the April 15th deadline. We reported it here, went through all the reasons. And now this is the chairman of the full House Ways and Means Committee. Very trivial, you know, kind of trivial pursuits a little bit, but uh, these distinctions are very important in that now Mr. Neal, uh, Congressman Neal, top dude, of taxes in the House of Representatives. Uh, of course, he reports to Speaker Pelosi, and uh, they uh, are usually of the same mind as to what uh, to do under tax policy. But uh, Mr. Neal yesterday put out a, uh, uh, a, a pronouncement saying that he thinks we should extend the April 15th due date. And the interesting part of it is uh, his, some of his reasons. Some had been mentioned before. Uh, but the ones he mentioned last night was as of the end of February, quote unquote here, the number of returns filed was down 25% from last year at the same time. And the number of returns processed by the IRS is down 31%. Further, only 27% of telephone calls to the IRS are being answered, indicating that approximately three out of four taxpayers trying to reach the Internal Revenue Service are unable to get help. And I am certainly one of those three out of four I've tried on behalf of my clients calling and usually get hung up on, almost never get any help. Um, and I know it's because of COVID, it's because of staffing issues, and uh, there it is. So um, maybe, maybe, I wish they would make a decision already, but maybe. So what I find interesting is, uh, of course, I'm focused on the outside world, outside the IRS, uh, clients, uh, businesses, the, the problems they're having, getting information together, uh, getting ready to bring to me what they need to. Um, but um, the uh, uh, this pressure to extend the deadline seems to be coming from inside the IRS, and maybe that will win the day. Um, the IRS is 130,000 people. Uh, they're a union shop. Not, uh, that's great, right? Uh, they have mandatory coffee breaks twice a day. Mandatory lunch, mandatory time to come in, mandatory time to go home, mandatory vacation time, and on and on and on. I'm not denigrating any of that. I'm just saying it is a big bureaucratic regulatory uh, organization, and you can't push it too hard because it will just not react. Uh, it will follow those internal rules. It's not like here in business. Uh, we need something done. Uh, let's work all night and get it done. Uh, 
not going to happen in that kind of an organization. So in fact, it's illegal to happen. So that's the uh, the problem. They have to fo follow work rules. And, uh, and there's a pandemic, which is uh, uh, pain and suffering on all of us. So there you go. Maybe we'll see. Hopefully, again, my, my two cents is please make a decision one way or the other. And, uh, you know, stop, stop with the teasing, right? Well, we really, really think so. And we'll write another letter to the, to the uh, IRS commissioner and we'll get a few more people on board. And, and no, no, this is too important. It affects too many people. Um, and uh, it'd be great if they did it. Um, I, I think one of the big pressures, and this is my own speculation, is that at the Treasury Department, there's a, a, a poor accountant sitting there and he runs everything. I've listened to this guy on NPR radio, the, the, the chief controller. And he sits there and he says, on Thursday, $300 million have to go out for Medicare. On Friday, $800 million have to go out for Social Security. On Monday, the Army gets paid. On Tuesday, the Navy gets paid. Right? He's the guy who really runs the federal show, which is a $4.5 trillion operation. Now, I think he's sitting there telling his th people that, you know, if you slow down the inflow by uh, giving people a two-month extension, extension, that's going to impact the decisions I have to make about outflow. Uh, money really matters. Dollars and cents matters. And so we'll see. We'll see. But uh, it's still up in the air. So, okay, moving on. Let's go to talking about uh, what's happening in Congress. So um, the House of Representatives passed the $1.9 COVID relief package back on February 27th. And I, I, I kind of get into all these little numbers. So maybe you'll find it interesting. The House passed it by 219 votes to 212. So it passed it by seven votes out of 431 votes. Now there's 435 members of Congress. People are often gone because they're sick or there's a funeral or there's something going on. So 431 actually lodged a vote, maybe a few abstained. And um, this $1.9 trillion bill, please, please don't lose focus on the fact that uh, 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 these are enormous sums of money that uh, um, are are very infrequent. In fact, we never really saw bills this big. There was always the budget. The government runs on $4.5 trillion a year. Did I say it right? This is a $1.9 trillion bill. <laughs> uh, and, uh, um, you know, you can't just, you can't just uh, make believe that these are small rounding errors. These are fantastic sums of money. And uh, I think there's no political issue to say that it all has to be borrowed. It's not sitting anywhere. It all has to be uh, obtained by having treasury auctions and having people um, um, bring that money in. So it's a big, big thing. And it passed by seven votes in the House, 1.6%. Then it moved on to the Senate. Uh, the Senate spent a few days and uh, uh, made some amendments that we'll talk about. And it passed in the Senate 50 votes to 49. Uh, one senator, uh, Mr. Sullivan from Alaska, uh, had a family emergency and a funeral to go to. So it wasn't, otherwise it would have been 50-50. And if you know the rules, then when there's a 50-50 split in the Senate, the vice president of the United States, uh, uh, Kamala Harris, would have had the vote to break the tie. Uh, we presume, obviously, would have voted with the Democratic side, then the, the bill would have passed. 
but these things are phenomenally close, right? It's 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 unusual to have bills pass that close or lose that close, and it's uh, also um, uh, unusual to have bills of this size. But here we are; we're in a new new world. Uh, now the House, uh, since the Senate made changes to the bill, the bill goes back to the House of Representatives, and they have to agree to the changes the Senate made. Hopefully they won't have more changes if it goes through and there's no hiccups and there's a whole bunch of procedural issues. But if it goes through, uh, then the bill goes to the president's desk to sign. And President Biden has uh, clearly indicated he's he's got his pen out. He's ready to go. He's ready to sign it. And he will. And uh, whether you think that's good or bad or indifferent, I leave completely up to you. But that's the process. So um, the House, uh, the House. Now, where are we? Right. So it's been it, it's still in flux. It's still not the law. The House will take the procedural vote uh, uh, Tuesday, today, uh, before removing before moving to final passage, which is expected Wednesday, said Majority Leader Steny Hoyer in the House. And then, then it would make its way to the president, who uh, would be expected to sign it on the 14th. Okay. Now, uh, one of the biggest issues in there is the COVID relief package provides one $1,400 of direct payments. And we've been, you know, we've been waiting for this, uh, all of us, the collective we, uh, since uh, way back in 2020. And the bill, for whatever reason, and you can put your own narrative as to why it didn't get, it didn't move along, it didn't move along. Finally, $1,400 to individuals making up to $75,000 annually, $350 billion in aid to state and local governments. Uh, sticking point in past negotiations between Republicans and Democrats, being a, the state and local uh, governments, uh, and a $14 billion for vaccine distribution. The measure also includes an additional $300 in weekly jobless benefits through September and a child allowance up to $3,600 per family. And I will just add um, that I do not believe $1,400 is enough. If you are someone who has been severely impacted, lost your job, you know, are months behind in rent, uh, you know, all the list of horribles that could be out there, um, you've been waiting for months and months and months, 1,400, uh, living here in Northern California, about 30 miles south of San Francisco and 15 miles north of San Jose, uh, $1,400 is a joke. So if you're going to do it, do it and help somebody. Uh, but to help them a little bit, but not enough to really make a difference. I mean, it's certainly if for someone who's living like I can't uh, buy food. I mean, I, I, I good. But uh, in my humble view, um, it was delayed too long. It uh, is uh, too little for those who are really in need. And um, and we'll go with that. OK, so moving on in the bill, there's a number of interesting prov provisions uh, back in 2018, uh, 17, 2017. Uh, under the Trump administration, there was a limitation put on what they called excess business losses. And I like the English language. Um, I think that's an oxymoron. You can't have an excess business loss. If you're in business <laughs> and you lose money, there's no excess. You were trying the best you can. For example, if you, uh, so so the, the the law, which I disagreed with, said, that uh, there are circumstances where certain entities will have losses. And we have decided as a government 
that your loss was too big. We're not going to let you flow it through to the individual shareholders or partners. We're going to limit that loss and maybe can take it in the future when you have income or some other uh, ways to do it. Well, um, uh, talk about overreach, right? When I lose money uh, in a business, one assuming, you know, now you have to make the assumption it is a valid business. It's not, it's not like horse racing, you know, having a, a racehorse or, or a, what they call the gentleman farmer, right? You have this farm, but you really don't work it. And you, you have a few, a uh, few bits of crops every now and then, but you really hold it just because you want to own the land and you say, oh, I have a business. So now I get to deduct my upkeep costs. <laughs> well, that's really a personal expense if you just kind of have a piece of property. And anyway, anyway, without going into that, uh, if I have a business and I've lost $250,000, I spent the money somewhere. The money had to come from somewhere. It's either out of my pocket because I invested it or I borrowed, I went to the bank and I begged, right? And, I, and the bank thought it was a good idea. They lent me the money. I spent the money. I lost the money. Government came in and said, no, you can have too much loss. No, and we're not going to allow you a deduction for some of that loss. Completely disagree with the entire fundamental concept. Uh, so uh, once that went in, uh, then COVID struck. And uh, back uh, about a year ago, uh, they immediately said, well, we're going to waive that uh, because now people really need all the tax deductions they've had. They have, they've spent the money. And so under this COVID relief bill, they can continue to suspend what is fundamentally an inappropriate law, which is to uh, uh, limit business losses. If you have a business loss and you aren't cheating, that's real money. You are doing the best you can. Uh, some businesses take many years to get out of the startup phase. And uh, so, the, so they realize that. You no, know, in a crisis, there's uh, no time to, to limit anybody's losses. And uh, um, they keep changing. Anyway, interesting point I wanted to make there. For most people, it's not an issue. Uh, the current law limits public companies from deducting more than $1 million in compensation for CEOs, CFOs, and the next three highest paid offices. This goes back, back to 2008. where we, And even before that, there were some rules about how come the CEO makes 50 times what the lowest worker in the company makes. Now, I, I, I'm not, I, I'm kind of, uh, I'm trying to be a non-political. I, I, I'd say, I'd say, I really don't see the problem, but, um, but it's been in the tax law. And, um, uh, uh, and now like most things, once it's in there, it becomes into our psyche. It becomes normalized. All the tax accountants and lawyers become familiar with it. And then the people in Congress say, Hey, let's tweak that. So what did they do in a COVID bill? Uh, they decided the Senate bill, which is is now going to go back to the House for approval, would expand the list of covered employees to include the next five highest paid employees, right? Uh, more dollars that are potentially non-deductible if uh, people who are working hard that the company and the board directors decided are worth what they're getting paid and the tax system comes in and says, well, we're going to second guess your decision about what someone is worth and say, well, you can pay them, but we're not going to let you deduct it. And listen, we reasonable people can differ on whether they think that is a good rule or a bad rule. My comment here is, why is that in a COVID bill? I, okay, so moving on. This provision uh, would also impact uh, uh, aimed at providing relief funds for financially struggling 
multi-employer, single-employer plan. So you see the interwebness. I'm not saying it's negative. I'm just saying they have to keep trying to keep track of how much money they are dealing with. So if they're going to deny a deduction over here, they're going to deny that deduction for government revenue goes up. And, oh, we have some more money because we're denying a deduction. Let's use that new money, right? It's not money that's coming in. It's money that is going to come in because you're denying somebody else a deduction. Let's use that to help fund uh, multi-employer and single-employer pension plans who are in trouble. Another worthy cause. Another worthy cause. Why is it a co in a COVID bill? And you see how they do. They have pools of money. Let's put a little there, a little here. All right. Well, continuing on. Uh, further expansion of the employee retention tax credit. Now, let me first start my comments with uh, anyone out there with employees who wants to try to get the most benefit they can under the uh, uh, payroll protection plan and all these credits, uh, please, please, as we have often said, go and call your payroll service provider. Um, they have SWAT teams of people who have been uh, uh, getting used to the new rules, have systems in place, know how to file the forms, know how to help you. Your local friendly CPA is more of an income tax guy. He's not a payroll tax specialist in many cases. And, uh, and we don't have the time, energy, or money or resources to invest in a payroll tax filing. So your, your um, ADP, QuickBooks Payroll, uh, Paychecks is one I often get um, uh, emails from saying, hey, we know how to do this. We know how to do this. So the employee retention credit is very significant, and please make sure you're, you're looking into it. Uh, uh, so the Senate bill would build on the House bill's enhancements to the employee retention credit by allowing certain hardest hit businesses to count wages paid to all employees as qualifying wages, uh, sounds pretty good, rather than those wages paid to employees that are not providing services, wages paid to people who are not coming to work because of COVID. And by making the credit available to certain startup businesses subject to certain limits, it also would clarify that employers that were not in existence in 2019 must use their average number of 2020 employees for purposes of determining the wage. And this is the point I want to make. I always bring up Phil the barber, my friend Phil the barber. He's a barber. Good guy. Cuts hair. Right. He's entitled to some of these things. The math is unbelievable. They took a, something that was supposed to be a good thing and they made it a bad thing because they said, well, you're entitled to this, but you need an MBA and a rocket science spreadsheet with pivot tables to get to the answer. So call your payroll company. They're there, there to help. And uh, they have the templates written and hopefully they can take from your payroll. In fact, if they're your payroll company, they have your payroll information by people. They can do these averages and calculations and um, claim everything that you're entitled to. Okay, further expansion of paid sick and family leave credits. The Senate's bill would also expand the House's proposal to enhance the employer payroll tax credit for COVID-related sick leave and family leave by providing for reimbursement of pension plan and apprenticeship program contributions made by employers under collective blah, blah, blah. <laughs> it's, again, you know, ivory tower stuff now. If you're involved in this particular issue, it could be very, very important to you. But um, I will move along just saying, call your payroll company. Uh, they know all these rules. Um, now, um, getting back to the economic income, income payment, uh, economic impact payments. 
uh, as is the case in the House passed bill, the $1,400 payment un amount under the Senate version would begin to phase out when adjusted gross income on your tax return reaches $75,000 for single people and $112,500 for head of household and $150,000 for joint filers. And this was something that people have been arguing about uh, for a long time, that you, you should target this. Uh, I mean, people who have not lost their jobs and life has continued on somewhat as normal uh, shouldn't be getting a check. I, I think uh, we can sort of agree on that. Uh, this, If we're going to send out money, it should go to people who are suffering. Uh, so uh, the Senate bill made some modifications. Uh, under the Senate passed plan, however, payments would be fully phased out when AGI reaches 80000 for single taxpayers. And I'll just skip to 120000 uh, 150000 for a joint, sorry, 160,000 for joint filers without children. Okay, so you see now, uh, do you have children? Do you not have children right now? Thankfully, if you're filling out your tax return, your software will be able to figure out whether you qualify or not. Uh, the IRS has tons of data on you from the last tax return you filed, so they know whether you have children or don't have children, up and down, and uh, they'll come at it. I, I go back to my prior comment, yes, but when they finally get through, you know, you thread the needle, you get through the gauntlet, it's $1,400. And it's been six, seven months coming. And in uh, the Bay Area, that's a joke. And it's really mean. It's a mean joke to people who really need it. Uh, and I'm generally not one for giving out money to people. But if you're going to do it, do it in a meaningful way. Okay, moving on. Tax exclusion for certain unemployment benefits. So, you know, you get unemployment, which a lot of people have been on. It's taxable income. There were a few years where there were exclusions to that. Those went away. Then it became taxable income again. Well, they've come around to thinking, you know, if you're down on your luck and you're getting, um, you know, you're getting this unemployment insurance, perhaps it's a good idea to make it tax-free. So uh, uh, Finance Committee Chairman Wyden, who's uh, up the road here for, in Oregon, uh, amendment extends the limitation on excess business losses that we talked about before, and also a provision that would exempt from gross income $10,200 in unemployment insurance benefits received in 2020 for households with income below 150,000. So you see how they're targeting it? It's saying, okay, you're, you're in trouble. You got $10,200 from the EDD here in California as unemployment insurance. Normal law would say, well, it's taxable income. You might owe some tax. Uh, they're gonna say, no, it's not under this. We'll see if the House goes and agrees with that uh, in their last pass. Now, keep in mind, again, um, uh, I'm a little bit familiar with this, that uh, when the Senate puts in an amendment, they're already talking to leadership in the House of Representatives. They're not just going off rogue on, the, on their own because they know that whatever they do had to go back to the House for passage. So there's a very good chance that the House will accept all of this because they were already consulted before these amendments were made. And that's that's a good thing because it makes things it makes things move along. Um, so the uh, uh, amendment would also enhance the federal supplement to state level unemployment benefits through September sixth. See, moving on, uh, compared to August 29th in the House bill, both both of those are an extension to a timeline that was otherwise going to run out, run out, but reduced payments to three hundred dollars a week uh, from four hundred in the House bill. Originally in the House, they wanted 600, I believe, and so it's it's going down. Um, and 
Uh, whether that's good or bad, I leave to you. Um, gross income exclusion for foreign student indebtedness. For I'm sorry, for forgiven student loan indebtedness. No foreign in this. The Senate bill includes a provision that calls for the exclusion from gross income for student loan indebtedness forgiven after December 31, 2020. And I'll give you a very brief thing. If you get forgiven a loan, it can be income. There's one, the biggest exception is, well, it's not income if the loan made you insolvent, meaning that your liabilities exceeded your assets. So most people get out of it that way. I say get out of it. They don't have taxable income because if they consider the debt, they're insolvent. And you fill out a form and you'd say, see, I'm insolvent. And uh, then whatever you've forgiven is not income. But for those who uh, would otherwise be solvent, it's a big deal because you get forgiven a big student loan. And um, a lot of times there was fraud by the the uh, university or whether whatever it was involved, and uh, you incur this debt, and sometimes there's no fraud; it just didn't work out. So if the if the debt's forgiven, um, of course, you don't have any money from this transaction. So the last thing you want to do is have to shell out tax dollars because you were forgiven something that you couldn't pay back anyway. So they're trying to clarify that uh, that'll be okay, that it will be uh, excluded. Then uh, there was a provision for a minimum wage. Now, I'll just read this because, it, it, again, I'm into this interesting back and forth and rules of how Congress worked because some of these intricacies really impact our life. The Democrats were forced to drop a provision in the House-based measure that would increase the minimum wage to $15 an hour after the Senate parliamentarian advised that the provision would have only an incidental impact on the federal budget and therefore would not comply with one of the so-called Byrd, Senator Byrd from long ago, rule limitations on what can be included in a reconciliation bill. The American Rescue Plan is moving through Congress under fast-track budget reconciliation rules that allows qualifying measures to pass in the Senate by a simple majority, 50-50, rather than three-fifths, supermajority, typically required to overcome procedural hurdles in the chamber. These protections essentially put Democrats in the position to advance the bill without Republican support. Okay, again, no politics, and uh, you can take what side you want of that. I think, I think it's interesting um, that the parliamentarian decided that um, it wouldn't work. So then um, the uh, Senator Sanders and others said, okay, well, uh, well, we'll, we'll separately pass the minimum wage. And it failed uh, in a vote, a standalone vote in the Senate. And so they'll take that on another day. And uh, uh, I, I won't get into here whether it's good or bad, or I leave that up to you. The, uh, so those were the major items that the Senate did to the House bill. The House bill uh, has a number of things that uh, I, uh, if you're interested in, uh, there's plenty of things on the internet. Uh, it's $1.9 trillion, of which I will state that uh, I've seen several calculations that only about 10% of it is directly related to COVID. Uh, but the argument is, well, we need to re-stimulate the economy because we're, we've been in a tough spot. So even though uh, only 10% of the, the, the amount being spent is related to uh, uh, vaccines, testing, tracing, 
maybe getting the schools open, however expansive you feel about that. Um, the, the argument is, well, it's all related to COVID because the country has had a terrible time and needs to recover. And I'm not arguing against that. I'm just saying $1.9 trillion is a tremendous amount of money. A lot of it gets spent uh, out into the future. Uh, and uh, it, uh, federal debt in general, step away from the bill itself. All this money has to be borrowed. There is no extra money. All this money has to be borrowed. They'll go into the bond market. The federal treasury will have bond auction. Uh, the, the amount of the debt will never be retired. It will never be repaid off, paid off. It will be refinanced. Uh, do you know uh, that we are still refinancing debt that was incurred in the Civil War? Those bonds have not been paid off. They've been refinanced. And if you take 50 or 100 years, the amount of the interest far exceeds the principal amount of the original loan. That's a fact. And uh, whether you think that's a good or a bad thing, uh, once again, I leave up to you. Sorry to be a broken record on that issue. All right. Well, um, that's what I wanted to cover. Things are in the show notes. I uh, hope the IRS decides soon whether April 15th is the deadline. And I hope you enjoyed it. Um, again, we're at Greenstein, Rogoff, Olson and Company. Uh, we're at 510-797-8661. Extension 237 is my extension. And we're at www.groco.com. Uh, always open to getting recommendations or suggestions on this podcast. And we'll see you next week. Thank you.